Well, hey guys, welcome once again to City Church. If you are a guest, let's give it up one more time for our guests today. Thrilled to have you with us. Um, If you do call City Church home, I really want to turn your attention to the blue card that's in your seat. If you can go ahead and grab that. It's a Mission OB response card. Um, And basically what this is, is we've got Mission OB coming up uh, at the end of next week. So in about 10, 11 days from now, we've got three days of Mission OB activities. Mission OB, if you don't know, is our system, our, our ministry to get out of this building and get into our community. We believe that God has put our church where he's put it for a reason and that we've got a calling to minister to our area. Can you guys go ahead and bring up that Mission OB slide for me? Um, it's got the dates and the times on it. I'd appreciate that. Um, there we go. Uh, and so you can see right there, uh, as well as on your card, what our opportunities are. And I want to run you through this real quick just so you understand all that we have going on. Uh, first and foremost, the reason for the timing behind this is we want to get out into our community and serve our community heading up towards Easter. First, we think it's a great way for us to serve Jesus before uh, such an awesome thing that he did for us. Uh, But secondly, the community in general, especially unchurched people, uh, statistics tell us that around 85% of people who don't have a church will go to church on Easter if somebody invites them. And so we want to get out in the community, be able to connect with people, be able to build relationships. And the beautiful thing about this is, if you don't know, we've been doing this now for about two years where we've gotten out in our community. We've done about five clothing drives. We've done multiple free car washes. We've done bottled water giveaways. We've done a lot of different things in the community. Uh, And because of that, uh, we've built relationship with some of the surrounding neighborhoods. There are people around here that expect us to come and bless them. And usually when we come bless them, there is no invitation. We're not promoting anything. We're not promoting us. We're just, hey, here we're here to love on you. And so I think it's a great opportunity for us this time to come in and say, man, here's, here's another outfit, by the way. If, you've got, if you're doing spring cleaning and you're trying to get rid of some clothes, this is a great opportunity for you to bring those clothes for our clothing drive. Uh, you can just bring them on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, whatever, um, over the next couple of weeks, and we would love to put those to good use at our clothing drive. But it's going to be a great opportunity for us to say, man, if you don't have somewhere you're going to church on Easter, why don't you come and join us and put a little invitation in their hands. So let me outline for you the specifics here as you'll see on your card what we're asking you to do is is to commit to being a part of it if you call city church home we want you to be a part of something on this card if by any way possible now obviously if you've got work commitments and you just can't get out of it we understand that but if you can make it at least to one of these four opportunities to serve we think it's really going to bless you we think you're going to enjoy it and get a ton ton out of it um So you have opportunities to serve even more than that, obviously, if you like. But Thursday will be our first night. We're just going to go from 6 to about around 9. It may not even take us quite that long. This is our promotion night. Basically what we're going to do Thursday night, April 17th, a week from this Thursday, is we're going to go out to the surrounding communities that we've been going to, the apartment complexes, uh, the the mobile home communities in the area, and we're just going to be passing out some cards telling them what's coming up the next two days. Uh, And you'll see what those things coming up are, but we're just going to be advertising and inviting them to come out. Hey, we're going to have some free clothes. Hey, we're going to have some free food. Hey, we're going to have these things going on. So we need some some leg work. If you come Thursday night, wear some comfortable shoes. Maybe bring uh, a jacket in case it gets cool in the evening, but you never know in Mississippi it might be 100 degrees. 
be ready. We'll have bottled water if you need it. Uh, but we'll do that Thursday night. Uh, so that's our, our manpower night. We just need to get out uh, on, our, on our feet, pass out some flyers. Friday night, um, we've got a special Good Friday service. We've booked the amphitheater over here in Olive Branch Park. Uh, and we're going to do a Good Friday service for the community just to, to bless people. Um, we're going to do a, a cookout, do free food for them just to kind of draw them in, love on them. Um, we'll have some things set up for the kids. So we need as much manpower as possible to greet people, connect with people. Uh, the more people that we have, the more stuff we can do for kids, the more stuff we can do for the families, etc. We'll need some people faithfully running the grill, uh, sweating for Jesus over some burgers, uh, and we'll all get to eat too. So if you come Friday night, you'll get free dinner as well as you get to participate in our service. So we'll have a service over there about 7 o'clock. It'll be a short service. It won't be a full hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes like we do on Sunday mornings. It'll probably be a little under an hour, but just to give people a little taste of what it's like to worship Jesus with City Church. Um, and then Saturday's our big day. Saturday, we're actually going to go until 4 p.m. from 10 a.m. And what we've done is we've split it into two shifts. Uh, obviously, you're welcome to come to the whole thing. Uh, but this way, uh, you know, if you've got other things you need to accomplish on Saturday, stuff around the house, if you can come and just hang out with us for three hours and be a part of either shift, it will help us out a ton. Saturday's our big day. So we'll be doing our clothing drive on Saturday. People will come in from around. You'll, you'll be shocked how many people people come to get free clothes. If you've never done one of these clothing drives with us before, you will be amazed at how many people in our community are in a position where they need some free clothes. Um, So you get to be a part of that if you choose. Um, We do also do a free car wash. So if you want to be part of the car wash, obviously wear clothing that you don't mind getting wet. Uh, So we're just going to bless people. When we do our free car wash, our signs actually say, and all of our people are trained, this is a no donations accepted car wash. This is not a fundraiser. We're not taking money. If they try to give us money, we just, man, you just back away and let the money hit the ground. They can pick it back up. But we're not taking money from anybody at this. Our goal is not to get their money. Our goal is to show them the love of Jesus. So we're going to wash cars for free, um, and we'll also have some cleanup projects uh, around that we'll be doing, and we're working on a couple of other projects to add to that uh, that I'm hopefully going to hear back on soon. So there may be some other features for Saturday as well. So if you come Saturday morning, you'll be setting that kind of stuff up and part of running some of it, and if you come Saturday afternoon for the one to four shift, you'll be part of running it and then tearing it down. So that's the gist of it. You do not need to turn this card in today. You can take it home, look at your calendar, check out what your availability is, Uh, but we would ask that it be turned in by next Sunday so we have a pretty firm count on how many people we have. That way we know how many flyers we can print up to send out, etc., because the more people we got, the more that we're going to be able to bless our community. So pray over that. Ask God what he would have you to do to be a part of Mission OB coming up uh, this month. Super, super excited for that. How many of you guys have been a part of Mission OB in the past? Show of hands just to see. So almost half of you probably have been a part of it. Thank you so much for serving our community. Thank you for loving this city. Uh, We believe that we are just really scratching the surface of what God is calling us to do outside of these walls. And if you have suggestions or ideas, if you know of needs in the area, um, we're not necessarily positioned to meet every need, but we do believe that we're uniquely positioned to meet some. And, man, if you've got an idea, hey, what if we were to try this? What if we could start doing this in the area? We are totally open to suggestions. So come see me, my wife, any of our leaders. Uh, We'd love to hear what your ideas are. And, and man, get out there and serve 
our city. All right, go ahead and open your Bible to Luke chapter 15. Uh, Last week we started this new series called Prodigal, and we're looking at this very famous parable, this very famous story of this lost son in Luke 15. Uh, Today we're going to spend our time looking at the younger son, the probably more well-known son in the story. Last week we discovered that even though this is commonly called the story of the prodigal son, it could really be the story of the prodigal sons. There are two wasteful sons. There are two lost sons. There are two sons that need saving, even though the one son didn't realize it. And so today we're going to look at the, the one who everybody knows is lost, the one that's famous as the subject of this story. And the next week we're going to look specifically at the older son and what we can learn from his portion of the story. But what this younger son struggled with is what so many of us struggled with or struggle with. He wanted to find something to make him happy, something to give him fulfillment, something to bring him pleasure. He wanted to find a purpose, and he looked in the wrong places. In fact, he looked in the absolute wrong place. We see him turn to everything the world has to offer. And instead of bringing him the pleasure and the fulfillment and the joy that he was after, It brought him destruction, it brought him depression, it brought him to his knees. And I believe there's maybe some of us in this room today who will be able to identify with where he is at. Uh, Remember last week we discovered that Jesus is in the people-finding business. That Jesus is in the people-finding business. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus talking about himself, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus came on a mission to find the lost. I'm so grateful that he came to find me. I'm so glad that he came, that his mission was successful. So Jesus is in the people finding business, and that if we've been found, if we've been brought into the family of God, now we are in the people finding business. He's commissioned us to wear his name, to be his representatives. So we have this saying that found people find people. So maybe today you're, you're going to hear this story, or maybe you're very familiar with this story, and you're nothing like the lost son at all. You are not lost. You are found. You are home. You are exactly where you need to be. If that's the case, we praise God for you. Man, we are thrilled, man, that there are people in this place that are exactly where God wants them to be in their lives, in their relationships, in, in their walk with him. But if that's you, I want you to know that there's lost people in your world that he's got for you to find. Man, there's lost people that he is that he's set in your life for you to bring home. And so as we look at this story of this lost son, I believe the Holy Spirit will help you to recognize what you can glean from this story as you go out and seek people who are lost just as Jesus did. So if you have your Bible open, whether for you that's your, your phone, your iPhone app, your iPad app, I know that's kind of high tech today and not so many people bring the actual Bible with them, uh, but in Luke chapter 15, our story begins in verse number 11. We're going to get to it here in just a little bit, but uh, as we do, uh, like I said, we're talking about this younger son who's the star of the show. If this was a Hollywood movie, this is the guy who would be the headline actor. You know, Hollywood all of a sudden is into doing Christian movies. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with that. Some of it I think is a good thing, some of it I'm not so sure. But if next month they rolled out the trailer for Prodigal and they're doing this Hollywood movie, you know, this is, this is the Ryan Reynolds or the Colin Farrell, like the life of the party guy that, you know, whoever they can cast, that he's the one everybody wants to hang out with, everybody wants to be around. He's the guy who really doesn't have 
have any morals, doesn't have his life together. He's the star, the headliner of our story that we're looking into. Um, So Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Excuse me. I was doing the exhortation after worship. My mouth just went dry, like so fast. I don't know what happened. Uh, So I've got to stay liquid it up. All right, so point number one, what we see here. Um, If I want to be found, or if I want to find someone, I must first recognize the cost of being found. Being found for us is free. Salvation is free, but it is in no way cheap. It had a massively high price. And this son, this lost son, his salvation, as we're going to see, does not come without a price. His being lost, in fact, does not come without a price. He leaves home in search of freedom, in search of independence, being able to do what he wants, when he wants, partying it up, connecting with all of his friends, whatever he wants to do. He leaves because he simply didn't want to be home anymore. He was tired of the life he had with his family. He wanted something different. He's driven by a belief, the belief that things are going to be better if he just gets away from dad, if he just doesn't have to answer to dad anymore, if he doesn't have to live under dad's rules anymore, if he doesn't have to work anymore, man, life is going to be perfect. And so he goes out and in the process, he causes his family incredible pain. In this culture, to ask the father for a share of the inheritance, as we talked about last week, was a, was a massive disgrace. He's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And as we looked at last week, the, the dad, in this instance with two sons, would cut the inheritance up into three portions. The older son would get the double portion. He'd get two parts of it. The younger son would get a third. So he's saying, Dad, I want a third of your wealth right now. I wish you were dead, but since you're not, I want to take it with me Anyway, I want to grab this and run. And so the Jewish culture is pretty amazing. If you actually study the Jewish culture of the day, there's only one proper response. They actually had a response for something like this, which is crazy to me. There was one thing that you were supposed to do if your son dishonored you greatly. If your son just basically disrespected the family, disrespected the father. And this was the response. I'm not making this up. The father was supposed to punch the son in the face. How awesome is that? There's some sons in America that need some Jewish dads. I'm just saying. Could use a a good pop in the face once in a while. Uh, I was that son at one point in time. I'll tell you more about that later on. Thankfully, I didn't get the pop from my dad, but I did get punched in the face, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, but, But, man, there's some people who need that. But this is the proper response. He was supposed to punch his son in the face, but that's not where it was supposed to stop. It wasn't just one pop and it was good. He was actually supposed to repeatedly punch him in the face as he pushed the son out of the house. And basically, he was banishing his son. He was excommunicating his son from the family. You don't disrespect 
the godfather, right? Like you don't mess with daddy in this culture. And so this is what the father was supposed to do. And so the hearers were ready to find out that this father went and kicked some tail. They're ready to find out that that he inflicted some pain and the story doesn't go the direction that they expected. The dad's response is absolutely unthinkable. Not only does he not give his son the punishment that the son deserved, he actually gives the son what he asked for. Can you imagine? Can you imagine your son, your child, telling you, I want my inheritance now? And actually going to the trouble of cashing out your accounts, of dividing up your property, and giving the child the inheritance at this point. That's exactly what the father does. Verse 12 says, the younger one said to this father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. That second half of that verse, if you were to read it in the New King James, it says it this way. It says, so he divided to them his livelihood. That word which is translated property in the new NIV and livelihood in the New King James, that word is actually in the Greek is bios. It's the word which we get life. Biology, it's the root that normally means life. In fact, most of the time when you see bios in the Greek in the New Testament, it is actually translated life. He's literally dividing up his life amongst his sons. Here's how it worked. If you go all the way back to Moses in the Old Testament, God calls Moses to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So Moses comes and he delivers the the people from Egypt. They go across to the promised land and Joshua steps up and he leads the people in as their general, as their commander into the promised land. And the walls of Jericho fall down and the sun stands still. And God does these amazing works to give the people the promised land. Well, once Joshua and the Israelites got into Israel, now They had to settle it. And once they settled Israel, what they did is they chopped it up into 12 pieces. And each piece was given to a different tribe. And so once the tribes got a hold of their piece of land, then they would chop up the piece of land and disperse the land to the inhabitants of their tribe. So each family was awarded a certain amount of land in the promised land. Now understand, this wasn't just land to them. This was the promise of God. This was the blessing of God. This was the symbol of escape from Egypt and slavery into the blessing and the favor that God had for them. This was highly, highly significant. And so it was passed down from generation to generation. In fact, Bible scholars will tell you there's anywhere between 49 and 50 generations from Joshua to Jesus. So each generation, this land is passed down, and each family maintains land in the area of their tribe. They can trace their family all the way back to their roots. This was our ancestors who moved into the promised land. They used to live here. This was massively, massively significant to them. And so when you got an inheritance, you didn't just inherit dad's money. You didn't inherit his bank account. You didn't inherit his livestock. The primary portion of an inheritance, what an inheritance really signified was the land. The land was what mattered. That's what was given. And so it says that he divided his property between them. It's not referring to his his clothing and his jewelry and his Nintendo games. It's referring to the actual acreage that they've inherited from their ancestrals in the promised land. And so he divides the property between them. He's got however many acres, and he gives his younger son, here, this is yours. This third of the land is yours. Do with it that which you please. 
And so we see that the son takes the land and cashes it in. He leaves. He's going to leave. It says in just a short time, he left on a long journey, and he went and squandered his inheritance. Well, you can't squander land in a faraway land. So he took the land, and what doesn't, it doesn't say in the story, but what had to happen is he put it up for sale, and he sold his father's land. He sold his connection to his inheritance, his connection to his ancestors, his connection to his family name. So he's not just disrespecting dad. He's disowning the family. He's cashing in everything that connects him back 50 generations to the men and women who marched in to the promised land. He cashes it all in to go to a faraway land and squander his wealth. Now, the other thing that you have to understand is a Jew isn't going to buy another Jew's inheritance. It was considered disrespectable. It was considered despicable. Any self-respecting Jew isn't going to go in and buy that. So not only does he sell his land, but he sells his land to Gentiles. The promised land that God provided for them, for the Jewish people, for the Israelites, he cashes it in and gives it back to the very people that God took it from for him. It's a massively, massively more interesting story when you understand what's actually going on here. And so, the dad has two options. He can smack his son in the face and kick him out of the house. And I'll be honest, reading the story, I'm like, that's what he deserves, right? Like, this is is a punk. This is an idiot. Why would you do this to your family? How could you ever think that this is the right thing to do? That's the first option. That's the normal option. That's the default. But the father doesn't choose that option. He chooses the second option. It's a very painful option. It's a very tragic option. But it was the only option that left open the door for reconciliation. It was the only option that allowed his son's heart one day to change and come back to daddy. And so daddy shouldered the pain. He bore the brunt of the sting of ripping apart his inheritance, which was handed down from his grandfather's 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 grandfather's, and said, I'll give this up for the chance that my son will one day come home. And he gives away the inheritance. And his life, his bios, Jesus says, is ripped into shreds. One third of his life is disconnected from him. Now here's what we have here. It's not just a a crazy story about some Jewish customs. It's actually a story of Jesus. You see, and Jesus is the center of it all. And all of scripture revolves around him. You see, God chose to rip apart his life to shred one-third of the Trinity and sacrifice one-third of who he was to leave open the door for that lost son named Troy to come home. That lost son named whatever your name, that lost daughter named whatever your name is, he ripped apart one-third of who he was to sacrifice for us to have a chance of reconciliation with no guarantee that we would ever come back. It's an amazing, amazing story when we dig down into the parable of the prodigal son. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, says God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. He sent Jesus to bring reconciliation, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Found people 
find people. We've been given the message of reconciliation. It's our responsibility. Finding the lost is not cheap. It came with a massive expense on this father's part. It comes with a massive expense on Jesus' part. He's paid the highest price imaginable. But guess what? I must recognize the cost of finding the lost. See, it's going to cost me something too. I don't have to die to find the lost. Praise God for that. But God has asked me to live in such a way, to leverage what I have, to leverage my time, to leverage my energy, to leverage my relationships, to leverage my finances, to leverage my schedule in such a way that finding the lost is a part of who I am. He says, I'll give up everything so that we can bring the lost home, but I want you to play a part. Now, is it going to cost us something? Yes. Is it going to cost finding some space on the calendar to sign up to be a part of a program like Mission OB? Is it going to cost some fear of witnessing to that person that you work with and you know that that person is far from God? Is it going to cost something in, in whatever area of life that God's calling you to reach somebody? Yes, but I promise you this, it's so worth it. Gosh, if you've ever been a part of bringing one of the lost home, if you've ever had the privilege of being with somebody in that moment or, or of sowing a seed and finding out down the road that that lost has, person has come home, you will live to do it again. It's incredible. Just last week I got to speak with someone who, who for the first time crossed over from death into life. And as I spoke with this individual, their face was filled with tears and the biggest smile you've ever seen in your life. It's the most beautiful picture uh, of someone who has just found Jesus for the first time. I love that stuff. I live for it. I'll never forget it. And you get to be a part of it as well. It is going to cost us something. We must understand there's a price to reach the loss. But that price is worth it. Secondly, Luke 15, moving on to verse 17, says, When he came to his senses, speaking of this lost son, he said, How many of my father's hired men have room to spare? And here, or food to spare, excuse me. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. This brings us to the second thing we see here. If, if I want to be found, especially, I need to understand this. I need to retrace my steps. If I want to be found, I need to retrace my steps. I told you earlier I got punched in the face, and it was a good thing. Uh, that happened to me. My, my prodigal season, my lost son season, was towards the end of my eighth grade year. Towards the end of my eighth grade year, I, I had been turned on for God, and God had used me in a, in a mighty way early in the year, and then something happened, and my first girlfriend broke up with me, and I was really heartbroken, and it's so lame. Like, I'm so embarrassed to even tell you this is the reason, but this is what happened. And so I went into this, like, rebellion, because I'm going to show her how tough I am, which is whatever. Uh, so, so I live in inner city Seattle at the time, and, and I started hanging out with a bunch of guys who were in a gang. And I never officially joined the gang, but I, I got the gang signs, and I was what we called down with. And, and down with meant that I wore the color, I had their back, they had my back, whatever. And so I'm flashing the signs and tagging and just being really, really stupid. And so this one day I'm walking home from school, and I will save you all the gory details, but basically I got jumped. There were nine guys wearing a different color that I walked past, and uh, it only took three of them to kick my butt. And they kicked it pretty good. Uh, and I was humiliated. It was in front of the school, in front of, man, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, I, 
experienced some severe physical pain, some emotional pain. My reputation was lost. Uh, nothing went the way that I wanted to. And it was about three days before the end of my eighth grade year. And I wish I could say I came to my senses right then and there. It actually took a process of a couple of months. But over that couple of months, God used that butt kicking in my life to say, this is the life that you're choosing. Is this really who you want to be? I've got something better for you. I've called you to something greater than that. Is this really what you want? And at some point in time, I said, you know what? It's not what I want. At some point in time, I looked at where I was at and said, how did I get here? And it's a great question for us to ask if we are lost, when we're away from where we need to be. How did I get here? And I need to go ahead and retrace my steps to get back from where I came from. Have you ever had that moment in life where you ask that question, how did I get here? Maybe you were driving somewhere and you weren't paying attention to the directions and all of a sudden you're a long way off from where you need to be. Maybe something began to drift in your work life or your marriage life and you began to realize, man, how did I ever get to this place? I always thought I would be so much further, so much better, so much safer. How did I get here? The younger son has this moment. He looks in amazement and begins to evaluate. How did he fall so hard? I had it so good when I was with dad, and now I have it so bad I'm feeding pigs and wishing I could eat their food. He realizes the error of his ways. This is what the younger son is thinking as he's feeding pigs. They actually fed pigs what are called carob pods. I got a picture of that. I think if we got that carob pod picture, uh, a carob pod it grows on a tree. It's kind of a cross between a nut and a fruit. It's kind of an unusual uh, type uh, of thing, uh, but it was pig food. Uh, the only people who would eat this were the lowest of the low. The most impoverished peasants might eat a carob pod if they couldn't find anything else to eat, but primarily it was food for the livestock. And he gets to this point as he's feeding these carob pods to these pigs, as he's throwing them out into the mud of the pigs, he looks at that carob pod and says, man, that's better than what my stomach has in it right now. I wish I could have that. And as he looks at that, he realizes, I used to have steak. Man, I used to have lobster. I used to have the best of the best, and now I'm desiring to eat a carob pod. What's wrong with me? And he comes to his senses, and he retraces his steps. He returns back to the place from where he came. On our wedding night, uh, before we left our reception, my dad pulled me aside and congratulated me and, and handed me a crisp $100 bill for me to take with us on our honeymoon. And at this point in time, we were pretty strapped. We needed that $100 to make this honeymoon happen. Uh, it was going to be a big, big blessing. And so I put it in the, the pocket of my tux and I hug my dad and I say thank you and then we go and uh, Melody's parents had rented for us that night a a Corvette you might have seen some of the wedding pictures with the Corvette that's not our car that was a rental Uh, so we go and we get in the Corvette and I speed off and get a wheel getting out of the almost crash the thing give her dad a heart attack Uh, and and we go and somehow along the way this hundred dollar bill disappears in the car on the walk I don't know So the next morning, I realize, man, this thing is gone. In fact, that night, I realized it. So I begin to retrace my steps. I'm walking back through the parking lot. I'm walking back through the driveway. I'm pulling apart everything in this Corvette, trying to find this money. It was absolutely gone. But you've probably experienced that where you lost something, and you start going, okay, where did I go? Where was the last place that I saw it? Where have I been since then? And you start retracing your steps. When you're lost, I encourage you, retrace your steps. Get back to the place that 
that God had you before. So that if, you've, if you've been found, if you've been part of something better, and now you see yourself drifting, retrace those steps. The son came to his senses in the pig pen. That, that phrase in the Jewish culture for came to his senses is actually an idiom for repentance. To come to your senses didn't just mean his light bulb went off and he realized, oh man, I can eat better. What it actually means is he came to a place of repentance. Repent is such a beautiful word. When we're on the wrong track, God will use circumstance and everything in his disposal to get us to make that U-turn, to get us to turn back to him. In the Greek, the word for repent is actually metatoneia, and it refers to changing your mind. That's the word that appears here in the story. But in the Hebrew, which is the language Jesus would have been speaking, the word is teshuva. And teshuva means not just to change your mind, but it actually means to change your direction. It means to make a 180. See, repentance is not just simply saying, man, I'm sorry. Repentance is turning away from our sin. You may have noticed when I lead people in a prayer to to receive Jesus, most of the time I'm going to use this phrase, I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus. It's a repentance. It's a change of direction. It's a teshuva. God is calling us, if we are lost, to a teshuva. When you begin to retrace your steps, when you begin to go back to that thing that you knew was better than what you have now, it's going to require an adjustment in your direction. And when we repent, yes, we need to say, God, I'm sorry. Yes, we need to say, I, I'm so, so, uh, I so regret these sins. I so regret these things that I've done. God, please forgive me. We need to ask for forgiveness. But that asking for forgiveness must be accompanied by a change in our action, a change in direction. That's repentance scripturally. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Prodigal son has some sorrow, but it's some godly sorrow. It's sorrow that leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. It's a good sorrow in his life. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, leads simply to death. So as he's heading home, he begins to write this speech. He begins to rehearse in front of the mirror, you know, here's what I'm going to say to dad. Here's what I'm going to tell him. And you know those speeches never come out the way you want them to. Anytime you rehearse something, how you're going to ask the girl out, or how you're going to do this thing, how you're going to go into your job interview, like nothing ever comes out the way you plan on it. But he begins to work on his speech, and Jesus actually tells us his game plan. This is what the younger son is going to say. Verse 18, second half says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he repents. He apologizes. But then listen to what he asks for. He says, make me like one of your hired men. Now what's interesting there is that word hired men, hired man uh, is not a servant. It's not a slave. He's not coming back to be the lowest of the low. The word hired man there in, in the Greek actually means a paid craftsman. So someone like his father who is wealthy enough, they didn't just have servants, but they'd actually have contractors who would come in and and work on the house. They had other craftsmen who would come in and maybe make a statue uh, of the dad or make something, you know, for them, for an heirloom. And so the paid craftsman lived somewhere else. He kind of had his own life, but he would come and work on the property for that eight or 12 hours a day, however long it happened to be. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I don't want to have to face everybody all day long. 
I don't want to live there. I don't want to be your servant. If I'm your servant, i got to live in the house, and i got to remember what I used to have. But i got to pay back my debt. i got to earn something back to be able to pay you for that land. i got to go buy that land back from the Gentiles. So just give me a job. Just pay me. I'll be there as long as I have to, and then I'll peace out each night and go back to my sorrow and my regret. And so many of us try to do this when we come back to God. We think we got to earn something. God, i got to prove it to you. God, I'm, I'm going to pay my penance. I'm going to earn back every mistake I ever made. I'm going to show you that I can get it right. And if you've ever tried that and I have, you're going to fall on your face. It doesn't work. You can never earn it back. You can never pay back the penance. The beautiful thing is that you don't have to. And a funny thing happens on the way home. The speech ends up changing. Luke 15, 20. It says, so he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, period. He doesn't go on to the rest and say, hey, I want to be your hired servant. I want to be your craftsman. He just says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, instead of leaning on works and saying, I'm going to pay you back, he just defaults to grace. I'm not worthy. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he goes towards his father's grace. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is this joyous moment in the story. Next week we're going to talk about Hollywood endings and how we all wish the story ended right here. Like, this was a Hollywood movie. This is the end of it, man. They roll the credits. They're partying. He's back in the house. Everything's great. Unfortunately, this story doesn't end here. There's another twist to this tale. But, man, this is the beautiful ending. This is the great moment. The son is back, and they're celebrating, and they're feasting, and he's back where he belongs. And the third thing we see here is that if I want to be found, I need to receive God's grace. Or if I want to find someone, I need to help them understand that they need the grace of God. The younger son alters his speech. He no longer says, I want to be a skilled worker and pay things back for you. He just says, forgive me. I blew it. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. What did the son deserve? He wished his father was dead, and he asked for his inheritance. He reserved what the Jews called a kazaza ceremony. You see, in the Jewish uh, the culture in the first century back then they had a kazaza kazaza was what was reserved for a jewish boy who blew his inheritance and squandered it to gentiles this was a specific thing to give back the inheritance to a gentile if that young man ever came back to the family after squandering the inheritance they would have a kazaza ceremony and what a kazaza was is they would all gather around this son and they would take a big clay pot and they would smash the pot right like greek wedding Oopa! Like they'd smash the pot in front of him, and then they'd all say together, Kazaza. And what Kazaza meant was you're shunned. You're disowned. You're no longer welcome to be here. And they would shun him from that point forward. No one would even so much as speak to that son. He was completely eliminated from the family. That's what the son deserved. He deserved basically to die, to be completely cut off, it's what we deserve because of our sins. We don't have any rights. We don't have any claim to heaven. We have no claim to God's family. We simply deserve to die. But God chose something 
different for us. He chose to extend to us and offer to us his grace. And so the father's right was to have the kazaza ceremony, but he doesn't have the kazaza. Instead, the father does the unthinkable, and he begins to run to his son. And we talked about last week how an elderly Jewish man would never run in public. It was, it was a disgrace for him to lower himself to that place. But actually, the Greek word here doesn't just mean run. It's the word that's used for a race in a stadium. He's going Olympic style, like chariots of fire, Like he's putting it all out there. He's running as fast as he can to embrace and reconcile with his son. And it says that he hugs him and he kisses him. And the word kissing is actually a present participle. It means they're part of... I don't know how to say it. You know the word. Uh, It means that he's constantly kissing him. He's kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and kissing him again. Over and over and over again. And that that kiss is a symbol of reconciliation. You see in the the Jewish culture a kiss uh, between two non-romantically inclined parties was a symbol of, of a very deep love. A very deep honor. It would be appropriate for a disciple to go up to his master, to his rabbi, and kiss his master publicly to show his affection for his master. That's why when Judas comes to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and kisses Jesus, Jesus says, do you betray your master with a kiss? This isn't what the kiss is supposed to be. The kiss is supposed to symbolize something beautiful and something great between us, and yet you're going to use this thing to betray me. The kiss was very powerful. And he begins to kiss and love on his son. There's two things I want to show you as we wrap up today. Very quickly, two things from the text that are super important. Number one, notice that the father did not enable his son's rebellion. Mom and dad, hear me on this one. I know some have lost sons. Some have lost daughters. Some have rebellious children who have wandered from the faith, who have wandered from the family. And I know that a mom and a dad are going to do anything they can for their kid. Man, we are so looking forward to September 22nd, when our due date, when we bring a child into this world somewhere around that, that place and the chance to be a dad, to be a mother. But understand this. I know you would lay down your life for your child, but sometimes the best thing you can do for your kid is to let him go. Sometimes the best thing you can do is let them suffer the consequences of their mistakes. And what's so amazing is that this father has an incredible love for his son. I think everyone who would look at this story and say that this father's love was deep, it was beautiful, it was perfect, it was unconditional, it was everything that I aspire to be as a father. I want to have the father's heart for my child. And yet despite that incredible love for his son, here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't go hit up Western Union when he hears his kids broke and wire him some more money. So he can keep living in sin. He doesn't call up his business partners and say, hey, I want you to know my boy's over in this land. He's in your part of the country. He needs a job right now. He's feeding pigs. I know you can find a better job for him than that. Take care of him for me. He doesn't do that. The father leaves the son to suffer the pain of his horrible decisions. He doesn't go chase him down. He doesn't go to try to fix every decision that he made. He honors the son's rebellion. If that's what you want, here's the life that you're going to have. It's incredible that he loved his son that much. Because the easy thing to do, and I guarantee you the natural thing to do, would be to step in and try to rescue his son. But his son didn't need rescued. His son needed a lesson. My mom, the night before, I got jumped back in 1995. My mom knew I was in a bad place. 
She could tell that I was making some horrible decisions, that I wasn't hanging out with the right people. She knew that I was not the person who I'd been just a few months before. And so she prayed, God, whatever it takes for you to wake Troy up, I ask that you would do it. Whatever it takes for you to show my son the mistakes that he's making, I ask that you would open his eyes. And the next day I got my butt kicked. And it took my mom two years to tell me that story. She carried around the shame of that prayer for a very long time. But you know what? I'm so glad she prayed that because it's what I needed. I needed to be woken up. I needed to realize the penalty for the sin that I was getting myself into. I needed to see the error of my ways. And if she would have stepped in and, and tried to just protect me, if she would have stepped in and, and just prayed, God, don't let anything bad happen to him. I don't know how long it would have taken me to come to my senses and come home. Jeremiah 2.19, God says, your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and you have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Sin has consequences. It's supposed to hurt. Not because God's mad at you and he wants to punish you and he wants you to realize that you're an idiot. God's, God's not against you. He's for you. But it's supposed to hurt. So you, duh, there's the light bulb. There's the come to my senses moment. It's better if I follow God. It's better if I go with him. It's better when I'm in his protection. Because, man, when I'm out here outside of his protection and living for myself, it's pretty rough. It hurts. It stinks. Sin's supposed to have some pain. It's not supposed to be easy. And this father understands that. The story reminds me of the book of Jeremiah because in the book of Jeremiah, God is weeping because the people of Israel have returned one more time to idol worship. If you read the Old Testament, you see this happen again and 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 again. Like out of those 50 generations, probably like 37 of them turn to idols. Like it just happens almost every time you flip the page. They're back worshiping idols. They're back worshiping idols. God steps in and he rescues them. God steps in and he spares them. God steps in and he shows them grace. So finally in the book of Jeremiah, God says, all right. You can have what you want. You want to worship those things? I'm going to take my hands off of you. And what happens is the Israelites, they lose their country. Another country comes in and invades. They ransack them. They carry them off into captivity. And they're in captivity for 70 years. One whole generation is born and dies in captivity. Never experiences the promised land. Never experiences the inheritance. Never experiences what God has for them. One whole generation lives and dies in captivity. But when they come home, guess what happens? They never again turn to idols. Never again do we see a record of the Jewish people worshiping false gods. Never again do we see God's people rebel against him and worship anything but him. Why? Because they felt the sting of their mistakes. They felt the punishment. And parents, man, I know you love your kid. I know you want to rescue your kid. I know you want to step in and make everything okay. But if your child is in rebellion, if they're wandering from God, sometimes you just got to take your hands off of them and let the pain come, because that's what's going to show them it's time to come home. I could do a whole message on that, but I'm going to leave that there. Last observation for you before we wrap up today. The son came to the father on the father's terms. The son came to dad on dad's terms. See, a lot of times we want to come to God, but we want it to be on our terms. Okay, God, I'll come to you, but here's what I want you to do. I had a friend who I love with all my heart, and I hope and pray that he comes back to God one day. 
but he's been gone from, he's been wandering from the faith for a long time. And he's told me on multiple occasions, Troy, I just want to hear God's voice audibly. If he'll just speak to me audibly, if he'll just say my name and speak to me, then I'll know that he's there and, and I'll turn back to him. And guess what? He ain't heard an audible voice yet. And he's in his late 30s. And ticker is starting to wind down. He needs to wake up and realize that I don't come to God on my terms. I come to God on his terms. He's the one who's laid out the path. He's the one who's told me how to repent. He's the one who's told me how to get back there. And this son didn't come back to God and say, okay, I'm going to be this, 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 and this. You're going to give me this back, and I'll move back in if I can get my room back, and you kick so-and-so out. And, right? It's not how he came back. He came back and said, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. He bowed before dad. He humbled himself. And he threw himself at dad's mercy. Whatever you choose, however you want this to go, it's your decision. And the dad restored him fully. He got everything back. He got so much more than he deserved because God's grace is incredible. But he had to come to dad on dad's terms, not on his terms. And maybe you're here today and you've been wandering from God. Maybe you're here today and you've once been in a place where you were very close to him. And, and maybe right now you realize that you're not. And, and you've been trying to put stipulations. God, if you'll just get me out of this ticket, I'll, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. How many of us have ever prayed that? If I just get a warning ticket right now, Jesus, I will never speed again. Hallelujah. Like, right? We've all been there. Uh, but, but we put these, these requirements on God. If you'll, just, if you'll just get my kid out of this situation, God, I'll serve you. God, if you'll just bring my marriage back, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And we try to put all of these qualifiers. It doesn't work that way. We don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on his. And we humble ourselves. And we repent. And we turn from our wicked ways. And we say, God, I don't feel like I'm much. But I know that you want me. And I'm going to give you everything that I have. And when we do that, his grace steps in and he restores us. And he does so much more through us than we could ever even begin to imagine. It's amazing what God does. But we've got to understand it's not on my terms. It's on his. And so as you need to come back to God, I want to encourage you today. Come to your senses. Turn away from the mistakes that you're making. Retrace your steps. And come to him on, your, on his terms, not on yours. If you're trying to bring someone back to God, as you point them to Jesus, as you point them to God's grace, as you point them to the incredible blessings of following him, make sure you help them understand. They don't get to put their stipulations on it. They don't get to put, here's what I need from God. Here's what he needs to show me. Here's what he needs to do for me. And if God will bless me with this and do this for me, then I'm his. Help them understand they just need to repent and give themselves to him. And he's going to bless them so much more than the things that they could ever list. See, that's what's crazy about this. If he'd have came on his terms and said, here's what I want, he wouldn't have gotten as much as he did by humbling himself. God's way is always better. He always gives us more. He always blesses us greater but we've got to come to him on his terms. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.